series in the spiritual disciplines and hear from God's word this morning. Um, one of my favorite movies is Finding Nemo. And I saw it when it first came out, which was a shockingly long time ago. It came out in 2003. 2003. Um, so I was a teenager, and I remember it so well because it, it was, as a movie, was able to connect with me and my immaturity. It was able to connect to me emotionally, despite my immaturity at that age. It, I, you know, it's, I laughed, I cried, I was scared, I was excited. Um, and I, I hadn't, I don't know that I really, as a, as a young teenage boy, uh, had appreciated the fact that art, art can transcend who we think we are, can engage our emotions in an incredibly unique way, um, and teach us something about ourselves. I still think about um, even though I, I haven't even seen the movie recently, I think about the relationship betw of, between a, a father and a son or just a, a parent and a child. And I, one of the things that I, as I grew up and, and matured and became an adult, one of the things that I knew about my life is that I desperately wanted to be a, to be a father. And I think that, that seeing that movie and seeing a father do whatever it takes to find his son, even if that father is an orange fish, um, <laughs> that that connected with, with me. But there's something else, there's a scene in that movie that I remember very vividly that maybe you don't as much, and maybe I'm going to associate things with it that you wouldn't, but there's a scene in the movie that it's, it's mostly played for laughs where uh, they're swimming along and they're, lo they're looking and they're out in just the wide open ocean and they see a little tiny fish out in the distance and they're like, oh, look, little fish. Hey, little guy, how you doing? And the shot kind of pauses for a moment on the, this endless void of deep blue ocean, and there's this tiny little fish out in the distance. And I was sitting in the theater, and it's on the huge screen, and I felt bizarrely terrified. Because you know it's not a fish, it's a, it's a whale. <laughs> and it's, it's huge. And even this immense creature, and it, oh, I think in the, I don't know what kind of whale it is in the movie, but a, a blue whale is the largest animal that has ever lived, bigger than any dinosaur. Like, this is the biggest creature on earth. And there it is, and it's so tiny, dwarfed by the endless vastness of the ocean. There's something glorious about that. And that can be inspiring, and it can be scary, but it made me feel small. It put, put me in my place, in a sense, and gave me perspective. Years later, in college, I was able to spend a semester studying in Indonesia, and towards the end of that semester, we had the opportunity to spend a week at the beach and go snorkeling. And I remember, as I'm snorkeling in a coral reef, I was thinking, my goodness, this, like, I am in that movie. This is Finding Nemo. This is incredible. And I'm seeing clownfish, and I'm seeing all of these incredible fish that I can't even name. It was one of the most vivid, incredible experiences to see this the awesome, incredible beauty of nature. And I'm, when you're snorkeling, you just, you're looking straight down. You've got the snorkel, and you're not looking at what's in front of you. You're just looking at what's beneath you, and it's, it's so captivating. And I'm just swimming along, floating along, 
And I feel it before I see it. I, I feel a wave of cold come over me. And I look up, and the reef is gone. This is the, it's in the, it's in the movie too, this is the, the drop-off. The reef ends, and the ocean reveals itself in all of its vast, endless depth. And then I was truly, truly terrified. Again, I felt it, I saw it, and I turned around and got out of there. It was glorious, awe-inspiring. It was awesome in the realest sense of the word. And I tell you those stories because I want us to think this morning about God's holiness and his glory as our, the spiritual discipline that we're focusing on is worship worshiping our holy God, giving him, as Jamie said, what does it mean to ascribe glory to this awesome and holy God? So, our scripture this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Let's read together. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. This is God's word. So we think this morning about the discipline of worship. I want to say right off the bat that Worship is not something that is limited just to what we do here on a Sunday morning. But that is primarily what I'm going to be focusing on this morning is the discipline of worship expressed in the gathering of God's people on Sunday morning to be together and to worship Him. Like I, I say whenever I greet you, I'm glad that you're here to worship God and to be with His people. Because that is what Isaiah 6 is displaying for us. And Isaiah 6 is the passage of Scripture that for thousands of years, Christians have drawn inspiration from as they plan, organize, and participate together in formal worship. So worship, in worship, we respond to God's holiness by giving Him glory. We respond to God's holiness by giving Him glory. Now that sounds great. You can you can memorize that. It's short and it's simple. But if we don't know what holiness and 
glory mean or what they are. It, it's just a nice Christian-y phrase that we can say and then other people go, oh yeah, you, you know the right words. And so let's take some time to think about what holiness and glory mean and what they are, what the Bible says about them, how those things actually affect us in worship and in our lives. Let's start with holiness. The best and simplest explanation for holiness that I can imagine is the sun. And the sun, of course, was considered holy by most ancient cultures and itself was worshipped as a god. The sun, you can't look directly at it. It is too bright. It, it, it puts you away. It pushes you away, right? There is, there is a sense in which you, you, can't, you can't just be close to it. You can't engage with it deeply. You know, if you stare right at it, it's going to harm you. And yet at the same time, the sun is essential and utterly essential to everything we do in life on our planet. Without its light and without its warmth, we would not be able to see. We would not be able to live or breathe or do anything. Similarly, in its place in the cosmos, in our solar system, everything in our solar system revolves around it. It dictates where our planet is and how it moves. Its gravitational pull is an unchangeable, fundamental reality of physics. And yet, all the things that orbit around the sun are still millions of miles away from it, so far that it's really impossible to imagine or understand. It sets the stage and dictates everything that happens around it, and yet it also keeps things away from it, draw too close, and it will destroy you and consume you. Look straight at it, it will, it will burn out your eyes. It will destroy the very thing that you're using to appreciate its light and its, and its beauty. And so when we talk about God's holiness, we're talking about his exceptional power, his, his place in reality. God is the thing by which everything else exists and persists, moves, reacts, uh, is destroyed or is renewed. Everything that happens and everything that exists does so by God's will, by his initiation. And yet, God and his holiness is something that we have some distance from. And this, is, this is because of our sin, and we'll talk about this, the state of, of sin and holiness in a little bit. But you think about the Old Testament, the, the priestly order the way they did all the, the, the way they did their order of, of sacrifice and, and, um, and ritual, you could not enter the part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest and only in the right occasion could they go in there. And there was a very good chance, and you can find examples of this throughout the Old Testament, in which the person going into the Holy of Holies or the person interacting with God's Ark of the Covenant that he had um, imbued with his holiness for the sake of his people, that you might literally die. Someone dies totally by accident interacting with the Ark of the Covenant. Just as if you, if you were out somehow in a spaceship and you flew too close to the sun, you would be consumed. The sun isn't going after you. It, you're, just, you're, you know, you're just there. You're a speck of dust in it. God's holiness is, in that sense, terrifying. 
It's, it's similar to meeting someone who is just better than you. Better than you. Maybe, maybe it's a talent, right? Maybe, like, college is just getting started. I, there was college football on last night. You were the best running back on your high school team, and you get, in, you get on the team. You get, a, you get a football scholarship to go and play, and you show up as a freshman, and you, you are not good. You were the best, and now you are struggling to stay on the team. Right? Because you're, you're brought out of your little world into a bigger one. And you're, yeah, you're not as good as you thought you were. Your talents are put into perspective. You have a sense now. And just, you know, amplify that time after time. How many incredible college football stars do not have success in the NFL? Because again, just moving up. It's getting bigger. To go back to the, you know, to the whale and the fish, there's always a bigger fish. That's the expression that we use. Always something bigger, always something better, until you reach something that is holy, and that is God. Isaiah experiences this when he describes himself as a person with unclean lips. Isaiah is a prophet. He is a member of the royal family. He is accomplished. He has a place of position, privilege, power in his society. But in the presence of God, he's no one. He is nothing. In fact, his lips, the thing he uses to do his, his job, they're the very thing that he says are unclean, are no good. His best quality in the presence of a holy God is unclean and seemingly worthless. In Isaiah chapter 6, the, the seraphim that are flying around God, they say he's, not just that he's holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, if you want to uh, accentuate something, you say it twice. It would sound, sound a little bit silly in English. Um, it was good, good. It was great, great. It was best, best. You would never do it three times, and three times, is, this is the only time. It's almost like the, they're intentionally breaking the grammar of Hebrew to, to go above and beyond. Right? Like our language, their language cannot describe how holy God is. We have to break the rules to do it. And our language is just as inadequate. God's holiness is similar, but there's different to his glory. So I said, we respond to God's holiness, his otherness, his greatness, his exceptionalness, superlativeness, by giving him glory. Glory it's often, the word is kavod in Hebrew, and it, it means weight, significance, heaviness. If you're uh, familiar with Ecclesiastes, and I've quoted Ecclesiastes a number of times throughout this year, though you'll be forgiven for not remembering that, um, the author of Ecclesiastes is just bemoaning the state of the world and how everything is empty and meaningless. The word he uses is hevel, it means vapor, breath. This is almost the, the opposite of that, right? If, if the author of Ecclesiastes is looking at human life and looking at our accomplishments and our failures and just saying, man, these things, they don't last. They're, they're weightless. They're empty. They're meaningless. Then to say that something has glory is to say that it has weight, significance, meaning, purpose, that it will endure. 
So, <laughs> when I think about the whale or the scope of the ocean, and I say that it is glorious, I mean that it is significant in a, in a, in a way that challenges me. Um, to do some to similar, sillier ideas, you know, glory, uh, glory is something that affects the things around it, right? So if you drop a weight on something, it's going to break it. It's going to change it, right? Um, whereas something that's empty or whatever, you know, a feather is just going to not disrupt its surroundings. But, you know, something, something with glory, it, it, like the sun, it's going to have a gravitational pull. It's going to do something. So, you know, anything that is weight, has weight and significance, like like Chris Farley doing a cannonball, right? Chris Farley, heavy guy, comedian, long ago. Uh, you know, dropping a bowling ball into a, into a body of water, that's glory. It has weight and significance, and when it hits the water, it affects it, it shakes it. And that's what happens here in Isaiah chapter 6. The foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So glory is both something that God has, that he is, he is glorious, and yet it's also something that we ascribe, as the language we've used earlier, that we give to him. And so we give him that by acknowledging his significance. So just as in my experience, as I'm Floating through the water, I feel the change in temperature. I look up and I see the reality of what's in front of me, and I give it the glory that it's due by turning around and getting out of there. For me in my life, when I want to understand, you know, what am I, what am I ascribing glory or value to? Uh, I know for me, I can say, what am I anxious about? What am I anxious about? Sometimes, Sometimes it's, it's good things, and sometimes it's, it's not. I'll, I'll confess, yesterday we, we had a, a team of volunteers together from the church, and we helped, helped someone move, and the night before, I, I could not sleep. I woke up at like 6 in the morning. I was sick to my stomach, because I was just consumed with anxiety over this. Not because I didn't trust the people here at the church who had told me that they would be there, um, and not because I really expected anything to go wrong. I, it was just a general sense of, this is something important. I really want to go well and, and, and I want to, to do and I'm giving it perhaps more than it needs, but I'm, I'm giving it a little bit of glory, of significance. It's important. It's worth doing. It's going to have lasting significance, even, even if I'm not sure what that is. And so what you know, what kinds of things in your life, not just are you spending your money on or you're spending your time on, but what kinds of things consume your emotional energy, whether it's through anxiety or whether it's, it's, through, um, whether it's through pleasure or laughter or, or any number of different things. I mean, there are many things in our world that do deserve some amount of glory because they derive that glory from God himself. You know, when, when I think again about what a father would do for his son as a, in Finding Nemo, like, there is glory in being a parent and loving a child. It is a significant, weighty thing. And it reflects the way that God loves his people. Right? It, it has glory and it derives it from God. 
And so glory is weight, it's significance. It's like when we say, hey, that's, that's pretty heavy, man. That's glorious. And so when we give that to God, we worship him. So let's look together at how we do that here on Sunday morning. Again, we're, this, this is drawn right here from Isaiah chapter 6. So we experience the gospel. The gospel being that God is holy, that we are sinners, Jesus saves us, and Jesus sends us. So let's look back at Isaiah 6, right? God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is in his presence. He sees him. He is overwhelmed by this incredible display of holiness. He is called into it. And then he confesses. He acknowledges his sinfulness. Again, he's put in his place. Even his best qualities are still unclean and fall short. So he says, I am lost. Woe is me. Woe is not a word that we're very, uh, it's not necessarily common for us. He's not just saying, oh, I'm so sad. He's saying, I am cursed. And if you read the book of Isaiah, as a prophet, Isaiah will pronounce woe on Israel, on Israel's enemies, on the enemies of God. It's a curse. He's saying, my eyes have seen the king, and I am unclean. Woe is me. God, wipe me out. But that's not what happens. A seraphim flies to him and has a burning coal in his hand. And so, like I, I keep going back to that analogy of the sun as holiness. God's holiness in the Bible is so often described as a fire. And especially up until this point in, in the history of Israel, that fire has always been one of judgment that consumes. It destroys things that are unclean or unholy, people that have disobeyed God. It is a thing to fear. And so when Isaiah sees the seraphim coming towards him with a burning coal, he probably is expecting to be destroyed by this, right? Here he is. He is just flying right into the sun. He's going to just disintegrate and be consumed by this awesome holiness. But that's not what happens. He touched his mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And so we say that Jesus saves us. Jesus, in his life, his death, his resurrection, he accomplishes what that coal accomplished for Isaiah, for all who believe in him. See, Jesus, Jesus is God's holiness embodied. Jesus is God's holiness in, in fullness. It, it cannot be, he, he can't be corrupted by us. We instead can be changed by him. There were so many laws and regulations about being unclean or unfit for worship. If you had a, a sickness or a disease, if you were uh, bleeding or you had touched a dead body in the ancient Israel, you were considered unclean. Not necessarily sinful, but, but unclean, unfit to be in God's presence. Unfit to be in the temple. And if you were in the temple, you could make it 
parts of it unclean or the priest unclean and, and disrupt the whole order of, of sacrifice and worship. But when Jesus lives and teaches and heals during his life in Israel, it's the opposite. When unclean things touch Jesus, he doesn't become dirty by them. Instead, they become clean, they become healed because of him. That's his holiness. I think of the woman who is bleeding for years. She is suffering from a, a very uncomfortable, shameful, embarrassing ailment. She's feeling alone and ostracized in her society. And she thinks to herself, if I can just touch him, she understands God's holiness and his glory. And it's true, when she touches him, she is healed and she becomes clean. And so when we confessed our sins this morning, and we sang, and then Nick read to us and, and prayed for our forgiveness, we believe that Jesus, as God's Son, died, took the, took the penalty for those sins, that he rose again from the dead, that we, like Isaiah, receive that atoning forgiveness. We are made new and transformed. God's holiness, the thing that could have consumed and destroyed us instead, is our salvation. And we are made holy with him. So Jesus forgives us, and then Jesus sends us. Isaiah himself, now renewed by this experience, is able to hear God say, whom shall I send, and who will go for us and say with true and complete honesty and obedience, here I am, send me. Not because I am a great prophet, because I am a member of the royal family, because I have lived a holy and good life. No, send me because I have nothing but what you have given me. Because I have experienced your holiness. I know of your glory. I know that if anything matters or has meaning, it is you, God, and it is your will and your mission. So send me out to do it. Send me out to do it. So we express this in our worship service. When we were called into worship this morning from Psalm 96, it tells us to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. It declares his holiness, his awesomeness, invites us to sing, right? We need to be oriented and called into that place, right? God is, he's present everywhere. Like we said, the earth is full of his glory. We're not aware of that all the time. We're not thinking about it. So when we come to this place, the first thing that we need is to be told, to be reminded, to be encouraged. This is what we're doing here. We're here to worship a holy God together. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. And so throughout our worship service, we'll sing songs that acknowledge our, our sinfulness. We'll even read, as we did this morning, a prayer of confession. We will confess and acknowledge that we are sinful. We will, we will then also acknowledge the gospel, the good news that Jesus can and has saved us. So that looks like receiving assurance, peace, having thanksgiving, thanksgiving, and even petition, right? We can come and ask God for things, for ourselves, for our church, and for the world, because 
we know that we are his people and we have total peace about that. We approach him boldly. And then finally, we can be sent out, sent out from worship. We, we, we are blessed and we are committed to doing God's work in the world, to loving our neighbors and to giving him glory. God is holy. We are sinners. Jesus saves us from our sin, changes us and sends us out into the world. We reflect that by the way that we have, you know, planned out and orchestrated this worship service this morning and the way that we will every Sunday. Well, as we go back to 10 a.m. next week, I, I wanted to take time to think about worship because that is, that is our first priority as a church. And I look forward all the more to, to having more of you read scripture, um, to singing more songs, to taking a moment to, to pause in the midst of the service, to, to, to greet one another, to, to share coffee, to, to be together in God's holiness, giving him glory as his people. So this morning, I don't know, I don't know your heart. And so when you get called to worship, I, I don't know how that affected you or how you responded. And when we read the confession, I, I heard most of you reading it. I, again, I don't know that what was going on in your hearts. What we can do as, as leaders is, is set the stage. We can, we can create an environment. Um, but this is not chemistry. This is not, not chemistry or, or, or magic or anything like that. This is real people who have a, a, a relationship with a, with a real God, a God who knows our hearts. And so whether you're at a worshiping in a church like ours or a church that is very high and liturgical or a church that is very non-liturgical and low and even has less, less structure than us, is more of a concert, you know, all, all of those churches and everything in between, right, they, they are seeking to do this, to acknowledge God's holiness and to bring him glory. You know, you know the danger of having too much structure is that it we become married to the tradition and checking the boxes and we are committed to saying the right prayers and we forget about the God who is behind them. And, you know, the danger of the other end of having too little structure and too little formality is that we become perhaps cynical about our worship. And well, how many songs do we sing? It doesn't matter. And do we, should we start on time? Oh, you know, it doesn't matter. And it is, it is up to us, to all of us, to think about the state of our heart to receive God's call to worship, and then as we sing and as we confess and as we read and as we pray, to think and acknowledge and be present in what we're doing. And God, who knows our hearts, will, will meet us, will speak to us, will transform us, right? Again, we, we, we pray to prayer confession. I've, I've talked about sin I don't know. I can't look around this room. I can't look at any one of you and say, this is what you did wrong this week. But, but God can, and, and you know, right? When we prayed that corporate prayer, you know how that applies to you. And that, that's, that's up to you to bring your heart to that place to acknowledge it before God. Jesus warned the people of his day. These people praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He was quoting Isaiah. And so, 
we will, we will set the stage. We will commit ourselves to the gospel and to the word of God. We will sing songs. Uh, we will make coffee. We will set up that live stream. And we will worship together every week. God, who is faithful and who is awesome and who is good, will meet us. And if, if we have humble and honest hearts, we will receive from him what we need, whether that be conviction, comfort, encouragement, or healing. One quote for you from Celebration of, of Discipline. Just as worship begins in holy expectancy, it ends in holy obedience. If worship does not propel us into greater obedience, it has not been worship. To stand before the Holy One of Eternity is to change. In worship, an increased power steals its way into the heart sanctuary. An increased compassion grows in the soul. To worship is to change. Holy obedience saves worship from becoming an opiate, an escape from the pressing needs of modern life. Worship enables us to hear the call to serve clearly. So as we conclude this time, and we continue to worship, may the worship of God and what he is doing not end with the service. May it continue in your life throughout the week. And may, you all, may we all return here next week to receive that same thing, the assurance, the reminder, the confession, the adoration, to encounter a holy God and to give him glory. Glorify God this morning in your worship. Commit yourself to corporate worship and, yes, to holy obedience. How is God challenging and transforming you this morning? What do you need most from that experience? Think of all the things that Isaiah went through. Be honest with him. Invite him to speak to you. And he will. Let's pray together and continue to worship our God. God, may we, may we truly give you the glory that you're due to allow you to be significant, to recognize your exceptional worth. Lord, we, we can't truly and honestly do that without you revealing to us your holiness and your glory. Thank, the, thank you that you have done that in your word. Thank you that Isaiah prophesied about you and shared this experience, Lord, I pray that we all would experience your holiness and respond to it by giving you glory. That everything we do, we would do in worship, obedience, and holiness. Lord, we have been transformed and made into your sons and daughters, priests, Send us out, Lord, as we, as we go from here. May we live into that reality and bring us back, Lord, week after week to feed us, to challenge us, to encourage us. 
to continue the work of sanctification that you are doing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.